Welcome to the Productivity Mastery Podcast, presented to you by myself, Stoyan Yankov, Productivity and Performance Coach, Keynote and TEDx Speaker, and co-author of the Perform Methodology, and the book, Perform, The Unsexy Truth About Startup Success. Join me on a journey to discover what some of the world's leading professionals do to be more productive, create peak performing teams, and build successful global companies. New episodes weekly. And now, enjoy today's episode. All right. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone, and welcome back to Productivity Mastery. Today is going to be a special episode because I have a fantastic guest here with us today. It is a morning for him, and I'm very grateful that he's joining up in this early hour. Steve, how are you this morning? Doing well, Stoyan. How are you? Fantastic. It's the end of my day here in Bulgaria, and I'm really, really excited to have you on. Uh, for those of you who are tuning in right now, I just want to uh, share with you, let us know what's your question about the future of work to our guest. We're going to, uh, to give uh, one copy of his book. Work Quick, by the way, an amazing book. Everybody needs to get a copy of, of this book, Work Quick. I have the uh, audio version down here. If you want to get a perspective on the future of work, make sure to check out Work Quick. But for the people listening us live, post your question in the comments. We'll take some questions. And without any further ado, let me give you a bit of a context about who's here with us today. I'm super happy because, first of all, I'm super passionate about culture. I'm super passionate about the future of work and who could be a better person than my guest today with over 25 years of experience in as an executive in HR before starting his company, uh, working for companies such as, let me just mention a few, Spirit, Cisco System, Electronic Arts, before joining LinkedIn as chief HR officer and driving the growth of the company from 400 people to close to 4,000, as I understand, uh, going through an IPO and currently working with companies such as Twitter, Eventbrite, Intel, Kellogg, the Royal Bank of Scotland, McKinsey, Deloitte. And I can go on and on and on, but I just want to give you the word because I have 178 questions, Steve. How are you today? And can you maybe give us a bit of a context like the short kind of overview how did your career evolve and did you actually expect that it's gonna go the way it did uh yeah well first thank you for having me thank you for focusing on this topic which i just i can't talk enough about the future work and it, it it's such a confusing and complicated time for so many people uh how i arrived in the world of talent and human resources really a big accident i finished my university days many years ago, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. None. I didn't have any idea going to school, and I didn't have any idea graduating. Uh, but I did join a company that was interested in moving me around. And about one year into my assignment there, I discovered recruiting, and I fell in love. And the love really stemmed from my love of sports, which is really just uh, all about 
um, finding in what environments people do their greatest work, in what settings, and how they handle being behind, how they handle victory and defeat and stress and pressure, and what kind of coach is best for them. And I've always been a huge sports fan. And when I found that I could take my love of sports and my passion for competition and put that into a corporate setting, and people would pay me for it, well, that's where it happened. And then, uh, you know, over the next 25, 30 years, I changed industries, six different industries, and really developed a love for this craft. So, uh, yeah, I can't speak enough about it. There's no greater art form in the world to me than the art of coordinating people to do something greater together. And how did it happen that you were recruited as a, the first chief HR officer of LinkedIn? Uh, it's a really funny story. I, at the time, uh, I was working at Electronic Arts. It's actually in the introduction to my book. I tell a little bit of the story, but I was at a, a children's birthday party. So my young boy, who was probably four or five at the time, one of his uh, kindergarten classmates had a birthday party. And I said, oh, I have to go to this kid's birthday party all day. I wasn't excited about it. And, you know, kids screaming all day and running around and them drinking sugar. And I thought this is just not going to be a great day. Well, I met at that party a man who was working at LinkedIn, and he started to get me excited about the company and started to, you know, became, we became friends. And a few weeks later, he said, you know, we're looking to hire our first human resource executive. Would you consider it? And honestly, and I said, no, nah, I, I like the video game industry. I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm happy here. And he said, no, you should really try it. And I said, uh, okay. And so I interviewed for the job and they were near the end of their search. In fact, they were ready to make an offer to somebody, they told me later. And I was so excited after meeting the team, I couldn't sleep for two weeks. Um, uh, and it was really, for me, it was just an incredible dream opportunity of not only would I be able to practice my craft of human resources, but I could be a product advisor because they're making products for human resource people. I could help sell because they're selling to all my peers. And I never appreciated that I could do that in role, not, not just be a human resource executive, but be involved in so many things. And so I uh, was very fortunate. I got the offer and, uh, and the rest is history. I listened to, I believe, a podcast that you did. And you mentioned that one of the previous companies that you worked for, there were meetings for discussing and scheduling who should be on a meeting, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not very productive, right? Not very productive. And that was when I was in the insurance industry. And that was the big difference for me when I joined uh, Silicon Valley in the mid-90s. I'm from working in insurance and working in fashion retail before. You know, we would have a meeting in insurance to discuss who should be invited to the next meeting. And in Silicon Valley... You meet someone in the hallway, you have the meeting there, you make a decision, then you go back to your cube and you execute. It was just, it was shocking, but so exciting to me. Yeah, that different way. And then you're joining LinkedIn, high growth company. As I understood, uh, there were 400 people already there, but in a period of three and a half years, you 10x the number of employees, as I understand, right? How was yeah. that journey? Like, lead us a little bit through that because I'm sure there's a lot of people in HR, a lot of people, maybe small organizations, but growing really with fast pace. So, so mm -hmm. 
what what was the process like? Did you expect it? And what were some of the key learnings from this period? No, I don't. I, first of all, uh, I have a gray hair for every person we hired, every new country we entered, every new challenge. Uh, you know, the joy of that experience is really hard to explain. Um, I was a big company person mostly in my career. I'd never been in a small company. I mean, 400 is small by my standard where I was in companies that were 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people. So this was very different for me. And it was exciting to have your work make such an impact on a company when it's that small. But the growth was hard. We never expected we would be that big. Nobody, nobody even the investors, even the executives, the founder, nobody expected the success that we had. And the hard part when you're not sure of your success is that you never plan in advance to hire. It's never simple. And you're getting new information all the time, which is giving you maybe uh, excitement because you've got a little more budget, you've got a little more sales traction. Okay, maybe we should hire some more people, but we never laid the foundation to hire all those people. So for example, the first year I was there was right after 2008. And this was when the second mortgage banking crisis happened. You know, banks were shut down, taken over by the government. People lost homes and lost jobs. And so people were very, you know, cautious around wanting to hire anyone. And what happened was we had a baseline of 400 and said, well, maybe we'll hire another 200 people this year. And we wound up hiring a thousand. <laughs> a thousand over the next year. And so that, you know, and it's hard to explain how hard and, and crazy and chaotic, but exciting that was at the same time. And uh, you've been working closely with the executive team of uh, LinkedIn. What was it like working with Reed Hoffman? What were, you know, many people now follow and, and, and listening to leadership advice from him, but, but back in 2008, 2009, what were some of the leadership lessons you learned being closely working with him? You know, when I joined the company, Reed had just had a difficult experience with the prior CEO. And uh, there's a guy named Dan Knight. And so one of the reasons for that difficulty, Reed told me, was that the staff was confused who was leading the show. Was it Reed or was it the CEO? And so they wouldn't go to the CEO, Dan. They would go to Reed sometimes or sometimes they would go to Dan. And it was confusing. So when I joined, this was his next hire, Jeff Weiner. Reed had made a conscious decision that I'm going to stay back. I'm going to be a philosopher and a strategist, but I'm not going to be the executive making decisions. So Reed was wonderful in terms of he would be there for board meetings or if we had a deep dive strategy meeting, he would be there. But he was very clear. This is now Jeff's show to run. And so you know, the conversations I would have with Reed were not really tactical around growing the company. It was more very, very big picture. Uh, and it was wonderful to be there. And he, I mean, we had, Reed is, I think founders get a lot more credit and a lot more blame than they deserve sometimes. But Reed's brilliant was, brilliance was bringing together a lot of great people. I mean, there are so many people that contributed in so many ways, not just uh, investors that we had, but board members that we had, executives, frontline employees. I mean, that was a, a powerful uh, course that, that Reed said to just, we're going to put a high premium on bringing great people in. And so it took the pressure off having to have a genius at the top. Um, and so, and I think that's a, a lesson I will carry with me through, through the rest of my life in the organizations that I work with. 
I can see we already starting to get questions and I have a few more before we get into the Q&A, but those of you who are listening live, make sure to post your question for a chance to, to get a copy of uh, Steve's book. Uh, but, but a question that's a follow-up to what you were describing, Steve, is I'm just trying to, to digest the whole thing, right? You, you are brought into the company, 400 people, suddenly you start growing super fast. Did you... Did you set up any processes, any strategies to make sure that you're not just hiring in terms of quantity, but you're actually getting the right people on boards that the, the right culture fit as well? Well, first off, Soyan, the culture is never static when you're growing like that. You're in a dynamic environment, which feels very uncomfortable to a lot of people if you've never done this before. Your culture is evolving. And you have to embrace that and you have to welcome it. And one of the strengths we had recruiting against Apple and Facebook and Google was to say, we were smaller and earlier in our journey. Come here and help us build a culture. You know, and we know it's going to change. And we want your experience as a person, uh, as well, and a human being, as well as a professional. Come here. And that was a a very uh, strategic advantage that we made. But can I say that we, uh, you know, had great processes to, um, you know, sort out great talent in recruiting? No more than any, no more than anyone else. Um, what we did, which is different from most organizations I've been a part of, even to this day, is we made hiring great people and building a great team the first thing we talk about in every meeting, every single meeting. It wasn't the last thing. It wasn't, Oh, people are important, but we, let's talk about the revenue. Let's talk about the sales. Let's talk about the product. Let's talk about the engineering. No, it was the people first. And so I would say I don't have a, a strategy or a tactic to share, but I have the philosophy that talent was number one for us. And think about it, Stoyan. We're the professional network. It should be number one. We felt like this is our birthright. We're LinkedIn. We should be the greatest place anyone's ever worked. And so... You know, but it took us a while to realize that. I mean, I joined the company, it was maybe six years old. And it wasn't until we were like seven or eight that we finally realized, oh, we should be the greatest place anyone's ever worked. This should be the greatest company ever. And so it took, it took a while, you know, and, um, but we made it important. And I think that helped us a lot. And I think the question from Amy is actually coming in a really good place. Okay. Amy, thank you for being with us. So she has a two-part question. She's saying, thank you, Steve. Small startup culture is quite unique. When we go through high growth, what can we expect to lose in terms of culture? And do we endeavor to retain as much as possible? Uh, yeah, and I think, Amy, it's a great question. I look at this in two parts. First, don't give in to the paradigm or the belief that you're going to lose something on your culture. I would walk into this and say, we're going to add to it. We're going to grow but it's probably going to evolve and change. And I think today in business, if you have a culture that can change, that's a competitive advantage. If you have a culture that can't change, you're going to be hurt. So that's how I would look at it. But the biggest thing, Amy, that shocked me when we were growing that fast is the paradigm that so many of our employees had that, oh, we're becoming a big company now. Lots of bureaucracy, slow decision-making, lots of levels, all these people from the outside in big management roles that we don't want here. And so what, what I had to embark upon with our CEO as we were growing was we would do listening tours, you know, and we would ask everyone, 
what's working, what can work better, what do you think we should change, what can you change, and, and what should we be concerned about? And we would find myths. These myths would come out of nowhere. Oh, we're a big company. And we would say, uh, why? And they would say, because we have too much email. And then we would say, okay, well, stop sending email. We didn't tell you to send email. And then they would go, well, uh, we have too many meetings. And then we said, well, stop setting up meetings. If we just, you know, we were fighting this inertia where people, when you get a big company, and it's just, it's just, I think it's the law of nature. When we are part of something bigger, we feel less in control and we feel maybe more passive that we don't have an active place. And that's the one thing that's worth fighting for. And we fought and fought as much as we could that, you know, stop, stop creating these myths that, oh, all this is happening and stop believing you don't have control in shaping the future of the company. It's really hard, but it was something that we paid a lot of attention to and we tried. And what was it perfect? No, it wasn't perfect, but we really, really tried hard. Right. You make it a priority and then you do your best and, and then you learn and you do these iteration cycles and you come back to it and you try to do it again. And, and hopefully, eventually, people start appreciating it. And I, I wonder, I wonder in this, I mean, people probably don't realize, right? LinkedIn now is a massive company, but back when it was 400 people, I'm not sure how much you guys could afford uh, the top performers in terms of salaries, like competing with the big tech Brilliant. giants at the time. Uh, and this yeah. is what startups are struggling with right now as well, right? Like, how do we compete to to get the top talent? What, what did you guys do in order to attract the best people when you were not able to afford all the benefits and salary? Um, yeah, I talk a lot about this uh, in the work that I do today. And I think it's what we learned back then is still holds true today. So I would say in the first six, seven, eight years of the company, 95% of the people we hired took a salary cut. And they took a salary cut hedging that the equity in the stock that we gave would more than offset that. Okay. It's a risk that most people take if you're going to go to a startup. I'm happy to and pleased to and proud to report that everyone who took that risk benefited. Okay. For the most part, I did in a massive way. And so did a lot of the, my, my colleagues. Um, so what you have to do is you have to, you have to present an opportunity that takes the eye off a dollar or off of a money. You have to say, we're going to help people find their dream jobs. We're going to change the world. We're going to solve a problem that's worth solving and it's big, it's complica complicated, and you could make a difference in that. And if you want to do that, well, there are going to be a lot of spoils and rewards. But if you want to make more money today, then you need to go to Google because they will pay you more today. But you're going to be engineer number 7,000. You're going to be assigned to projects you don't even understand. But if you come here, you'll be engineer number 20. You put your fingerprints on our code. You're going to lay the foundation and the architecture of something that will fundamentally change the life of your children and your grandchildren. I don't know. What do you want to do? You know, that's the kind of, you know, focus on what are you doing that's different? And what I think the mistake that a lot of startups make, and I, I know because I'm coaching a lot of these companies, they think that saying, we're nice people, we have a good product, we're going to change the world, we have good investors, we're going to make a lot of money, is going to work. And then I tell them, everyone says that. Everyone says that. What do you have that's different? And in this world that we work in today, this is one of the big challenges for every organization, small, medium, large, extra large. 
people have more choice. Knowledge workers have more choice and they have more visibility of where they could work than ever before. And if you're not clear on why your destination is the best destination, you're not going to attract the best people. And this is the shortcut to recruiting, which is we realized even as a recruiting company, are you ready for this story? Even as a recruiting company, we can see all the data. The way to win the war for recruiting is to be the place where the best people find you and you don't have to find them. And that's what we did. We tried to create a great culture, a great environment, not the best benefits, not the most beautiful buildings, not the sushi chef and the daycare center. We couldn't afford it. But the best career experience of your life, we will do our best to take you on a great journey. And that's what we could control. And culture costs you nothing. It costs you nothing but commitment. And that's all we had. And um, we didn't agree on much as a leadership team, but that's what we agreed on more than anything. And I'm very grateful for that. I had great, great teammates. You know, one of the things that really struck me, and there was actually several things that struck me reading your book and, and following some of the other podcasts that you've been a guest at. Mm. One of the things that really struck me was this, this uh, I would say, perspective or, or the common narrative in the world of, you know, corporates and recruitment, which is, you know, quote unquote, we need to keep employees for the long run. What do we do to keep employees for the long run. A and your perspective is, is very different than that. Like really make me think, um, should we aim for keeping the employees for the long run? A and can you, maybe, can you maybe elaborate on that? What is your take on that? What's your perspective in 2023? Well, speaking as someone who started most of my career, believing that to be successful, we need to have people stay a long time. When I got to high technology in Silicon Valley is probably the most fluid geography of workers in the world. People are staying shorter. 10 months is like two years uh, in Silicon Valley. And so and seeing these companies thrive and succeed and grow and create and innovate. I have changed my perspective over time that in some industries and in, in many spaces uh, and organizations, long tenure. Long tenure is not necessary for great performance. And the best example today, Stoyan, is the automobile industry. Look at the most valuable company in the automobile industry. It's the newest one. It's the one that has the least profit. It's the one that has only been around less than 25 years. It's the one that doesn't sell the most cars. Tesla is worth more today than Ford, Honda, General Motors and Toyota combined, they're worth more. And they just showed up. And these companies have been doing this, making cars for a hundred plus years. So that changed my mind. Long tenure and people staying a long time is not necessary in every business for you to build something amazing. Now, I will also say, I want my best people to stay a long time. I do. But it's not required for everyone to have to do that. And in fact, there's advantages when you have new people with new ideas and new ways of solving problem in a world that's constantly changing. And if you have your all your leaders are from that company and never worked in another industry, you're limited in terms of the problems that you could solve and the perspectives and the diversity of thought leadership. And so that's how I think about it. And I, the more distance I get from this, the more uh, firm I feel 
that this is important. And I spend my life talking to leaders around the world and I share that with them and they're like, you're right, but I don't want to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. I mean, it'll be the best to somebody. (laughs) I usually ask a question for those of you that are having this question or this debate or this conversation with your leaders. I usually start with a simple question. Are you experiencing higher turnover in your company? Every company in the world. The answer is yes. My next question is not the one they expect. They want to uh, answer the question, why? I said, I don't care about why. I do care, but the more important question is this one. Do you think that's going to change? Do you think in five, 10 years, people are going to stay in companies longer? And 90% of the people, 95, 99% will say, no, I don't think they're going to stay longer in the future. And I said, aha, okay. Well, what does that mean for you? Because your whole company is built on keeping people longer. How you pay, how you reward, how you benefit, how you reward, everything. In fact, societies, most global societies, I would say Romania, I would say uh, obviously the U.S., Canada, Mexico, Europe, South America, economies are built for you to stay in a job a long period of time. In the United States, health insurance is a big driver. If you start your own business, health insurance is really expensive, almost to the point where some people won't start their own business because it's too costly to afford health insurance for you and your family. So, and try to get a mortgage to buy a house. The first question they say is, can you give me your payslip? And you say, well, I work for myself, so I don't have a payslip, you know? And they say, well, we can't let you buy a house. It's broken. And we got a long way to go to fix that. But, but I do believe this greater fluidity, it's going to take a while for societies and government and institutions and regulations to catch up. And this is one of the dark secrets, I think, that we need to all start talking about more, which is there are more independent workers in the world today than ever before. And it's only growing. People not working for someone else, working for themselves. But banks and retirement accounts and laws and health insurance and those things are still a long way from rewarding those people fairly. So, so where do we start, Steve, as as you know, business leaders listening right now, where do we start? Do we have to adapt, adapt our expectations to differently? And, and, and maybe can you share some successful practices, maybe or examples of companies that are adapting the way they recruit, the way they set up reward systems so that it fits the, where the preferences of employees are going? Yeah, I think the one of the company, the first one that comes to mind is one that we all know. You probably have used their products this morning, getting beautiful to start your day. It's called Unilever. And Unilever is a consumer goods company based in the UK. They have um, this belief and they're one of the most innovative uh, companies in the world of talent management. In my view, they are experimenting all the time. But they tell employees, we want you to have the safety and security of a full time job but the freedom and flexibility of a contractor and independent worker. And they're trying new things, different work schedules, four-day work weeks, working from home, working in an office, satellite this. And they're looking and they're gauging and they're evaluating. They're trying to, they're trying to, they know we're in a moment of change. And they're not trying to hang on to everyone back to the office, get in here. And, and like a lot of companies who are doing that, I think largely out of fear and uncertainty, Unilever is really trying some new things. Please go to their website. I'm also seeing companies in um, restaurant, fast food. Chipotle and and, uh, Chick-fil-A are two sort of fast food chains doing really great in North America right now. On their career website, Stoyan, 
they show pictures of people who used to work there. And they say, come here and be like these people who used to work here and realize your dream job somewhere else, becoming a teacher, becoming a nurse, becoming an emergency room technician. Come here, and we know we're not your dream job. We are part of your journey. We want it to be a great part, but we know you want to go somewhere else, and we're okay. We're here to help you realize that. That gets me excited. Those companies leading and pioneering. I just got goosebumps. Just <laughs> wanted to share. <laughs> go, go right now. Go, anyone who's listening, pull up a window, go to Chick fil A's career website, and you will see pictures of three people, two people who used to be there. If I'd put, Former employees on my career websites, when I was going my career, I would be fired. I would be on that page. You're out of here, you know? <laughs> and so it's very mature thinking. And it's really that, that, I mean, who really wakes up and says, man, I cannot wait to work in the fast food industry my whole life. Nobody. It's a transition place. And some people in executive roles for those firms say, yeah, I love it here. But they're not working in the kitchen every day. It's not meant to be something that's designed that way. And they are now saying, we know it. We know it. And if you want to stay, great. But we know you probably want to do something. So we're going to give you tuition and education and new experiences. And we're going to show our pride in you going somewhere else. That's amazing. You know, I have a small team, uh, but we often have uh, interns and they're staying for three to six months, right? So mm -hmm. I was listening to one of these, maybe it was in your book or in a podcast, but you were talking about employee alumni clubs. And I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. I can actually do that even with my small team, right? Like, but, but talk to me about that because I think it's such a brilliant idea. I think it's so underused. Yeah, this is the logic trail with why alumni are really important. As I said earlier, do you think people are going to leave uh, companies faster and, and quicker in the future? Yes. Is it happening now? Yes, it is. So what that means is we all have more people that used to work for us than ever before. You have more alumni. And it is the easiest, you know, most lowest hanging fruit that you can mine and take advantage of to, you know, help you solve problems or give you advice on a new product or introduce you to someone else or refer candidates to you. It's so easy. And most people, unfortunately, still feel like when some employee leaves, like they're getting a divorce and you don't think I'm sexy anymore. So I don't want to talk to you, you know, and that's really unfortunate. It's a missed opportunity. It's a big, big missed opportunity. And only one industry I think does this really well. And that's the uh, management consulting industry. They do it really well. Um, and they know when their employees leave, they could go to a company that will hire the management consulting company. So they want and need and benefit from that relationship. Yeah, this, there's a book called uh, The Power of Moments. I don't know if you've read it uh, mm -hmm. from Heed Brothers. And they are these two researchers and they, they come up with all these studies and data that shows that the, the moments that we often missing, but they're the most important ones from any experience, a journey, job, whatever, it's the, the first moment, the last moment, the lowest moment, and the highest moment, right? Mm -hmm. Like you go on a ride, right? You go to a whatever amusement park, right? Like these are the moments that, and they, their argument is that many companies are missing out on the opportunity to welcome someone, first of all, 
And then when they're leaving to make it a special experience, as you said, like what McKinsey's and BCG's of the world are doing really, really well. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And uh, I'm proud that LinkedIn is one of those companies that reaches out to me and keeps in touch. And we have alumni lunches and speakers and conversations and get togethers and reunions. And um, they're, they're really, really good about it. So, you know, easy doesn't cost you much to do that. And it really could pay. It's going to pay gr great dividends, I believe. Yeah. I was once I once applied for a job uh, at Lego, the Lego Group. I yeah. used to live yeah. in Denmark, and I did my master degree there. And Lego was one of these companies everybody want to work works for, right? So I applied for a job. They invited me to an interview. Steve, I never felt so good being so welcome. They gave me some Legos to play. There was somebody mm -hmm. to talk to me. Mm -hmm. They really took the time to read my application, my background. They spent an hour with me, two people. One of them was the head of HR or something. Mm -hmm. They were super kind. Now, I didn't end up being offered a position because my profile was not fitting. However, the HR person that interviewed me, he called me and said, Stoyan, I'll be really happy to provide some feedback. When do you have time? And I'll be happy to schedule time. He spent 45 minutes with me sharing feedback, how I can improve my job search, being mm -hmm. kind, being uh, caring and giving me advice and, and being inviting and saying, you know what, we actually love to have you in the Lego group family, but this is not a position that we see you thriving at. But mm -hmm. but whatever happens to you, we feel free to call us anytime if you need any career That's advice. Beautiful. Yeah. And you've never forgotten that, have you? Yeah. I'm sharing it on the podcast. Maybe it's going to be in the next book yeah. we're writing, right? <laughs> Yeah. And that's that, that that's looking at the long um, looking at the long view, taking the long view of those relationships. Right. And and leaders, instead of only caring about you when you work for them or if they hire you. you know, I had a similar situation, Stoyan, um, where I interviewed someone many years ago. It didn't work out. I didn't hire them. I But I was really taken by their creativity and their mind. And I kept in touch with this woman for 20 years here's an article and she would send me an article and we would, you know, discuss things. And if I was uh, traveling through where she lived, we would get together for coffee. Well, about six, seven years ago, uh, she reached out and, and I was looking to advance my career and try to find a seat on a board of a company. And I'd never been on the board of a company before. And she said, Hey, there's this company. I think you'd be perfect for the board. Somebody I rejected 25 years ago, we stayed in touch and she found me something that was on my bucket list. That's just amazing, right? Just like the story of the LinkedIn experience came from going to a kid's birthday party. Like sometimes we're sleeping in life and we don't see these things, but this is, you know, I, I think, you know, we're always in a fertile garden somewhere, somehow, and someone could really help us. And we have to keep our, our eyes and our minds open all the time. Right. We're so, we're so busy and, and we sometimes forget that there could be so many opportunities by just being a, a kind and caring human being and doing yeah. the right thing. Mm -hmm. So, well, thanks so much for sharing that, Steve. Uh, and I want to, I wanna, because you mentioned the remote hybrid, uh, I imagine you were working on your book when the pandemic was still on. That's what had happened to me. Thank you, COVID, for the opportunity to publish a book. But, mm -hmm. but you know, one of the things that came out of this pandemic was giving us, speeding up the process of us reimagining how work should look like. And, of course, many industries were forced to 
to have their employees work 100% from home during the times of the pandemic and the social isolation and so on. Now we are in 2023 and I don't know about you, but but I when I do work with, with leaders, with executives, with the, you know consulting work, one of the questions that pops up is, what kind of model do you think I should set up for my company, right? Like, what is the right hybrid model or should I get people to have the chance to work from home whenever they want or, or should it be three days from home, two days, uh, you know, like uh, they should be in the office? And I know it depends on the industry, but I just wanted to, to hear some thoughts from you. How, how could leaders look into this? Like, how do we set up a, a model that, that is... It's both good on the business side, right? We gotta deliver results, we gotta be productive, but but it's also caring for the people, right? P- people mm-hmm. feel that this is this is a good thing to be in 2023. Sure. I think so. And it, it is getting it's the one topic that gets the most attention, but I don't think it's the biggest thing that we are thinking about right now. Mm. Um, so I'll answer the question, but let me step back and say the pandemic has served a moment in time where we're asking things like why do we work five days a week or why do we need to meet? Why, why do we need to meet in person? Like what, what's the benefit of that? And we never questioned those things before. You know, why are we going to an office? Why is this five days a, a, a week? What, where did that come from? Eight hours a day or whatever it is in France, seven and a half hours a day. Why? Who came up with that? And the truth is they were all built like a century ago for, to solve different problems. And the, the pandemic sort of woke us up and go, oh, maybe there's a different way that this could work. And so I don't think what you're solving is hybrid or not. I think you're faced with the reality that many people realize greater life productivity, not work productivity, life productivity during the pandemic where they can see their kids in different settings and be home when they come from school or they can go take care of life chores at times when it's not crowded like it is on the weekend or before or after work. That life is more productive and more meaningful and in a, in a different way. And we never were given that moment before. So the problem that we need to solve right now is as organizations, how do I create great value? How do I build great value? And can I afford to experiment and try it in different ways? I don't think it's about this industry can or this industry can't. Certainly some are better suited to it. And some, I mean, like a cafe, you got to have people in the cafe. You know, there's just, there's no way, there's no way around it. So there's somewhere it's just, you know, mechanistically, it's impossible for you to run a business remotely, but where you can, I think the world is asking and talent is asking, I need to know you want to try it. I need to know you're open to considering it. And for all the companies that say, we are never working together again. I say, you're crazy. Like we, we don't have any long-term understanding if this is going to work or not. We don't. We're at the beginning. We're called we're, people call it the messy middle. We have no benchmarks. We have no, you know, uh, you know, proof that there's greater success remote versus greater success in person. Because there's so few examples of company that started in person and went remote and are thriving. And, and just like there's so few that did that and are failing. We're just we don't have enough data yet. And so, uh, but I think talent, great talent, is asking, can I do this job remotely? Because what they're really saying is, I'm reluctant to give up that great freedom, life productivity that I had. uh, And I need to know that you're willing to help me try to find better freedom than I had before when I was going to your office every day. 
You know, you know what I'm saying? So it's, you know, th th this whole thing is people are, it's becoming holy ground. Like, are you for it? Are you against it? I'm just like, no, the, the, the point is we need to have a conversation and both people have to see the other side. Think if you're an executive and you're running a 2000 person company or Jamie Dimon to JP Morgan is a great example of this, but his company's even bigger. You don't know that your company can succeed if everyone's working from home. You don't know. And you don't know if you can manage all the data privacy and the customer privacy. You don't know that you can and you're scared and you're going to get fired and the company might fail and then you're going to get sued and go to jail. So you're like, mm, I'm going to have everyone come in <laughs> until I know that I can do it like that. It's not so simple like, oh, you're lazy old man from an old generation. You don't understand. Sometimes that might be the case. But a lot of times it's, I need more proof that we can do this successfully. And so let's try this and let's try that. Let's learn. Like you said earlier, let's learn. Let's adjust. Let's tweak it. And if we can do it, we'll do it. But this is getting towards the personalization of work, which I think is a big, big trend that we're going to mm -hmm. see going forward, where it's just it, the the talent, the the main you know the component of this equation, talent and employers, talent has got a lot more power than it's ever had right now. And it's in short supply. It's hard to find. And people are changing careers faster and, and career paths faster than ever before. And employers are scared. So it's on them. I think this moment is going to force a lot of people to try new things. One of the questions I love asking human resource leaders when I'm with them is, in the last two or three years, how many of you have tried something with your talent strategy you thought you would never do? And almost all the time, whoop, hands go up. Yeah, that's the moment that we're in right now. And it, I don't see an end to that next year, tomorrow. I think it's going to continue to, to gain momentum. And I, I think the world will benefit. The world will benefit, right? You, you mentioned somebody that we need to build jobs where learning is embedded. How, how do we build jobs where learning is embedded in the culture? Yeah. So my, my, that point um, that I'm trying to make around learning is the competitive advantage of the future for employers is that you to get candidates, employees are seeing jobs are changing faster. I need new skills faster than ever before. So if I'm going to go to your company, you better deliver making me better, giving me new skills and giving me new experiences businesses cannot afford to hire people and say, okay, you're going to go to that, uh, you know, our company school for six months and then we'll see you later. They can't afford to do that. So you got to build learning in the job. And by the way, that's, I think, a part of the compensation that we should be talking about with people. We're going to pay you this, give you this many days off. You're going to have these perks, but you're going to learn more here than anywhere. That's what really was our competitive advantage at, at LinkedIn. We're going to give you experiences. No one's going to give you. They're going to look at your resume and say, you're not ready for that. Or they're going to look at your CV and say, you're not qualified. And we're going to say, you're qualified. Go figure it out. And we'll coach you and help you. And that putting people in situations where they learn new things and are given more responsibility than others will give them unlocks enormous energy, enormous energy. But most companies designed to disallow that from happening. You can't move into that job until you've been in this one for two years. And I used to build policies like that, like out of the belief that the longer you stay, the better you perform, the more consistent I can rely on your outcomes being predictable. I don't want to move you. Right. But now 
someone's going to leave if you don't move them. You have to. And that's why, you know, I believe this is the big change for leaders that they need to recognize. Don't wait for the learning department to have a training class on whatever. You need to give them new projects, new experiences, new assignments, and new rotations. It's on you as leaders. Uh, and that's part of the growth thing. You have to design an experience for them that's going to add value to the company and add value to them. Because if you don't, they're going to look on social media and find someplace that will. And maybe the other company isn't, but it looks like they are. So people are saying, grass is greener, I'm going. And this is the biggest fear why people, I think, leave today. Is, uh, am I growing fast enough here? Am I, am I getting stagnant? Maybe I should go over there because I could see all those people are working on cool projects, learning new things. So it's a big, big change. Yeah. You know, there's uh, uh, some employees I've been talking to that have uh, been sharing with me stuff like, uh, I really love and appreciate. One of the things I appreciate most about a, my job is when my manager cares, meaning they're taking the time to talk to me, to understand where do I want to develop, where do I want to grow and learn, um, trying to adapt my responsibilities and roles so I can get more of the things that I want to do. And I just want to kind of structure a question like this. What are some inexpensive ways to, to, to make employees more likely to, to like their job and, and to, to be with us? Um, okay, well, you're, you're hitting on something that is, strikes a nerve for me because uh, like and happiness are, are things that I think are nice to have. But I think winning and growth and uh, being honest and real are more important. And sometimes because a lot of leaders or human resource people think, oh, we need to have a happy culture. They are setting themselves up for people to not be honest and not have direct conversations. But some easy things that I would say is just loan someone out to work with another team for a week or ask them, you know, where most leaders don't have this conversation. Is your career going where you want it to be going? And what could I do to add to that? And what department in this company would interest you? And maybe I could find a way for you to take on a project or an assignment for them. And I'll, I'll, I'll lower your volume here so you don't have two jobs. But let's find a way that you really feel like you're making a difference. Having those conversations, the way Lego had the conversation with you, is going to make someone feel like they care about me. They're thinking about me. You know, and... Versus like, you know, are you done with that project? Did you finish that goal? Where's your result? Where's your report? Uh, you know, all this stuff. Um, and like Amy just said, you know, it is about belonging. If I could, Stoyan, uh, Cam Ling here in the question feed said something that I want to address here, which is, yeah, how can you change the mindset that hiring the right people is not about what they're skilled at already, but about the potential? So I've been recruiting for 35 years. And what I can tell you, those of you who are listening, who recruit, and you'll back me up on this. How long is that job description you recruited for actually accurate? How long does it take between that, that job description is written and the job changes? Sometimes it's a week, two weeks. So we know when we put a job description together, and I would tell this to hiring manager, do you think this job description is going to be accurate for a year, two years? And they're going to go, no, no, we're going to have new changes and new competitors come in and jobs. Okay, so what you need is someone that can adapt and grow and change. Is that right? And they usually go, yes. I said, okay, so let's hire someone that has close to these skills. But more importantly, let's hire someone we know can grow and learn and adapt because we know we're going to need new skills. We know we're going to need new abilities. And so let's measure in the recruiting cycle their learning velocity. 
and this is a big uh, it's a big chapter in my book. It's something I feel really um, passionate about. There's actually an organization called AQAI, uh, and I've been starting to do some work with them out of the UK, whose is sole intent is trying to help leaders and organizations become more adaptable. Uh, and I think this is the future. And I've said it before, and this scares the heck out of people. You ready for this? Those of you who are listening, please put a seatbelt on right now because this is going to freak you out. In the next five to 10 years, I think we're going to hire people more based on what you can learn than what you know. Let me repeat that. In the future, we're going to hire people more on what they can learn than what they know because we know the jobs are changing. They already are changing, but they're going to change even faster. Just like when I ask leaders, you know, um, you know, do you realize there are not just more new opportunities today, there are more new industries growing today than ever before. Think about this. Electric cars, how long have they been around? Airbnb, genetic testing, 23andMe. How about the, you know, biometric feedback, all these rings we wear and all these things, you know, they're new. Do you think the pace of new industries is going to slow down? And they go, no. Okay. So all the people that you want to hire are seeing all those new industries happen and they want to go learn new stuff. So you better have a game to prevent taking their eye off of all those new choices. You better have some glitter and some sizzle here. Otherwise, they're going to be drawn like moths to the light, wanting to go solve a new problem in a new industry. Uh, and, and that's super, super interesting. But I believe the, the big draw here, Kemling, the pain that's going to take leaders' eye off of moving from hiring experience to hiring more talent is they're not going to be able to hire people with talent. And we're already seeing that right now that most recruiters will tell you, we used to be able to hire people that were 90% qualified, and now we're lucky if we get 70%. It's just, it's not that those people disappeared, it's that people are changing career paths. And there, a lot of people are in accounting right now. We have a massive shortage of accountants because they're like, yeah, not so sexy. I wanna go do something different. I can use my math skills and go over there to the data science world where they're paying some real money. Um, and I can control my schedule more and have more influence and more financial security. Whoever thought that we'd run out of supply of accountants? Well, we did because we're in human resources and uh, finance people are our natural born enemy. Just kidding. But, um, but this, is a, this is a moment where we're seeing things we never saw. We're seeing people in the United States right now quit without another job in the millions. We never saw that before. People would always have another job before they would quit. Now millions of people every month are quitting and they don't have another job because they're confused and they're just, they're looking for something different. And so that gets back to, you know, what we talked about earlier is that you have to have a value proposition that's special. And if it's the same old blah, we're nice, blah, blah, ping pong table, blah, blah, beer on Friday, blah, blah, nice culture, nice leaders. We like people. Everyone says that you got to have something much better. Anyway, you got me I on loved it. So, I loved it, man. I loved it. But but you know what? One of the my second goosebump <laughs> today was was actually when you when you mentioned we need to have these real conversations. And again, I probably heard it to you in, in your book or yeah. or a podcast that you did when I was researching the on the episode. But you, you talked about we need to have these conversations when we are starting a working relationship with somebody, right? Um yeah like setting the, the right expectations on, you know, hey, let's put all the elephants in the room and, and, and let's mm -hmm. be real, let's be honest. Uh, also about the duration that we expect people to stay, right? Like, so um, can you maybe maybe also share a little bit about that? Because I think for me it was profound listening to you 
sharing this type of uh, conversations that we need to have? Yeah, sure. If you ask anyone in their career who they work for, who did they respect more? The boss that said, great job. You're doing awesome. I love you. Everyone likes you. Keep it up. Or the boss that says, you know, Stoyan, in that last meeting, I don't know if you're aware, but you ignored several of your colleagues that tried to uh, talk. You didn't invite Susan to participate in the meeting. And I think you lost the room. And I want you to succeed. And I want you to be aware of that. Now, that's not going to make you happy that I share that with you. That's hard feedback, but it's honest and it's real. And you're going to benefit more if I share that with you than if I, if I don't say anything. And that's why I get really, really bent out of whack when people say, we want a happy culture. I'm like, happy culture sometimes. And I want happy people too. Don't get me wrong. And I wrote a whole blog about this. that got thousands and thousands of views. And I think mostly people were agreeing with me, which is when we really overemphasize happy, I think what the unintended consequence is, is it's disabling people from saying, no, I think that's bullshit or no, I don't agree or I'm not sure I understand, um, or I think we should take a different approach because that's not a happy thing to do. And great teams are really great at managing through difference of opinion. And that's the whole diversity agenda, you know? And so that's why I'm like, stop talking about happy. Yes, I want happy, but I want to win. I want to win. And if you look at we're going through this incredible thing in the United States right now. So in called this March Madness basketball term. It's like, everyone's like, wow. If you look at those teams, they will all tell you that. And any organizational expert will tell you the formation of a great team is forming, storming, norming, and performing. Great teams have to go through tough. And that's not happy. That's uncomfortable. I've had three sixties in my career. I heard some uncomfortable stuff. I wasn't happy. You're not good at this, Steve. They don't like you. The fact that you do this or the way you make those, you know, uh, things happen over there. So, but man, that was so valuable to me. It was uncomfortable. I couldn't sleep for a few nights. I, I've, I felt really vulnerable, you know, and uncomfortable. But it was one of the greatest things that uh, one of the greatest gifts I ever had. And that's why we need to recognize, I think. And, and there's a fine line there because some people don't want to be honest because they're worried it's going to make someone want to leave, right? Uh, someone's going to have an emotional outburst and they're not, the manager's not going to be able to have it. But, uh, but this is the one class I've taught most of my uh, life uh, and most companies that I've been working in, which is how to deliver, deliver difficult feedback. Mm-hmm. And we all have to do that. We have to do it at home. We, you know, I know it's not going to happen in the office. If you, if you can't tell the people you love the most at home, Hey, how was dinner? Yeah. Dinner wasn't so good. <laughs> like little dry, you know, maybe we should go out to eat tomorrow night. You know, if you can't do it at home with someone you really love and loves you, you're not going to do it with people that you work with, you know? So we got to get better at that as a society. And by the way, you know, when we talk about, well, is, do we have a problem in the world with political polarization or discrimination or race difference? What's the key to that? being able to talk about hard stuff, you know, versus like, I'm right, you're wrong. I don't want to talk about it. That's where we are as a world right now. You know, no one wants to hear you're wrong. The truth isn't right. You know, I don't want to care. My facts matter. We got to talk about hard stuff. And in this world, now you're really getting me as a parent in this world where I call my children and they text me back. What do you want? I say, I want you to answer the phone so I can talk to you (laughs) and we can have a conversation and it's unstructured. 
And we all want to control our narrative in this world of technological seduction and obsession. I really worry the capacity for us to talk about hard stuff is being challenged. And no one's making, you know, one's intentionally trying to not have hard conversations, but our seduction with, oh, the answer to this problem must be technology. No, I think it's actually human interaction. And I don't know, maybe chat GPT, you can ask it like, how do I tell my boss I want more money with not sounding like an asshole? Chat GPT has got some great advice. You know, maybe, maybe this is the AI is going to be put to good use here. Um, but, but, you know, I think this is, I really feel very strongly about this. What, you know, people talk to me, Steve, well, how do you feel about your know, diversity? I said, I think it's about having hard conversations. You know, we're, we're not doing it. We're just telling recruiters, hire more people of this color or this gender. And we're not telling the recruiters why. And they're, they're going to resist. They're going to block you. And they're never going to tell you why, because you didn't give them a chance to. Um, so anyway, I think we got a lot. We got a lot of work to do there. I'm encouraged, but we got a lot of work to do. This is hitting bullseye, I think, and and I think we can have hard conversations and still be kind, and and that's something else yes. that people need to learn because yes. I just want to be honest. Well, yeah, but you don't have to be an a hole and be honest, right? You can be you can be kind. You can be you can find the right words, the right moment to to tell the things that should be, so we can have a real conversation. Uh, but mm -hmm. but uh, since uh, I want to respect your time, Steve, and I have a final question, a little bit maybe I wouldn't say egoistic, but uh, we're writing a book about uh, crisis leadership, and I want to take uh, uh, a few minutes just to to hear from you, maybe some advice, not just for me. Obviously, there's many people right now in 2023 yeah. going through turbulent times, you know, uncertainty. Um, generally difficulties. What, what from your this many years of experience now, what, what would be your advice in terms of how should we act? Or may, maybe let's take the question this way. What are some um, wrong ways to lead in times of a crisis when things are bad, when, when things are not going by plan and, and things are burning? Yeah, it's the turtle strategy. Sticking your head in the sand, pretend it's not happening, communicate less, And, and, and don't show up, be invisible. That's the worst thing you could possibly do. The best thing you can do is own the crisis. Don't let the crisis own you. Get in front. Tell other people before they find out. Instead of saying, oh, maybe if I don't say anything, they won't find out. They're going to find out. Like own it. Get in front of it. And here's one, th here's one unexpected thing. So we had one major, major crisis during my tenure at LinkedIn. It's probably the biggest one of my career. Uh, and that is we had some hackers steal millions of passwords of our users okay now most of those passwords weren't tied to a credit card but as you know the reason hackers want passwords is they're going to assume you're using the same password in your bank at your wherever you've got your money so people don't want their passwords stolen so uh we knew how it happened pretty quickly we knew the person who had not used their vpn appropriately at home And the hackers got in, they were in our IT department and it was a disaster. Okay. It was a disaster. Did that person get fired? No. Did they get yelled at? No. The CEO came and said, we have a problem. We're going to fix it. We're going to learn from this and we're going to communicate as fast as we can to all our members. And we're going to tell them what we're going to do about it. Most people, we could have never done that. You know, that no one would never would have, no one would have ever found out. But we did. And you know what? Our employees loved him so much for owning it, for stepping up, for being vulnerable. And he was more respected for owning. And he took the ownership. He did. He said, this is on me. 
You know, we need greater governance in this company and it starts with me. And that created that crisis, that mistake, that error, whatever you want to call it, created more loyalty. And if you handle this right, the way Airbnb handled the crisis of the pandemic and in, in firing all their people, they handled it so beautifully, the people they fired were more loyal to them than before they were fired. What? We've never seen that before. So that honesty, that integrity, that being open with people is really, really, really necessary and more powerful than you think, you know, and, and over my career, I've admitted so many mistakes and I think that's been a superpower of mine. And sometimes even if I didn't think it was my mistake, I would say, yeah, I'm sorry. That's on me, you know, and that's sort of now we can get to solution, right? Let's get to solving it versus trying to find the blame. Yeah. Steve, thank you so much. I think it's a brilliant way to, to wrap up this session. And, and just before we, we do, I just want to remind everybody, go check out this book. It's called Work Quake by Steve Carrigan. You can find it everywhere. I'm listening to yep. the audio version. Oh, there's the, yeah, there it there is. You go. Yep. Screenshot. <laughs> Thanks, so, so so make sure to to get a copy. And and Steve, I just wanna I just wanna say thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you for for this mindset that you're bringing to to literally the leadership of some of the most impactful companies, which is going down the layer. So so many mm -hmm. of us are actually being impacted by your work. But but I want to give you give you a minute just to to share with us. There's many HR leaders listening. There's executives. I wanna, I wanna get, give you the chance to share what, what are you up to these days? What's your focus, and how could people get in touch with you? And what services and solutions can you offer to organizations? Yeah. So my, my mission in life right now is really to try to help leaders and organizations find great solutions to the complexity we all face today. And this is a moment of great experimentation. There really aren't a lot of benchmarks and we're none of us are used to living in this universe where we're trying to solve a new problem and we don't have a whole list of other companies, industries, situations we can draw from that we're like what we're going through right now. We have a supply chain issue. We're on the heels of a pandemic. The workforce is going through a metamorphosis in terms of their relationship to work. And, and we have a war in the Ukraine. We have gasoline price issues. We have you know, climate issue. We got a lot going on right now. We've never been so challenged and turnovers rising and disengagements rising. And so we, I think the way I look at this is we have the greatest moment in history to build a better future work. You know, the old ways that we've been using were built for a slower, more methodical pace of work, keep people here a long time because things aren't going to change that fast. But now things are changing really fast. We need new skills. We need new talents. And that whole formula of stay here a long time will be great isn't necessarily the right formula. For one of the big things that we've realized during the pandemic with all these people moving around is the way companies budget for salary is broken. Talents realized if I move, I get more money. But if I stay, I get your you know, measly little 2 or 3%. But if I move, I'm going to get 5, 10, 15, 20%. Why wouldn't I do that for my family? You know, And so- that's one of those things like we're going to have to change how we look at salaries internally because it's broken. And so that's what I what I try to do. If um, if, you know, Cam uh, Ling, if you need help, call me in. I'll talk to your managers. If you're struggling, that's what I do. I go into companies that need a little bit of a shaking and I try to say, here's the data. Tell me I'm wrong. But here's the data. If people are even faster and every one of your benefits is driven to reward people to stay longer, but, you know, they won't. 
I'm here to help you try to change that. So I'm usually a bit of an instigator. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I've got a website, uh, stevecadigan.com. Um, you can also uh, find my podcast, The Work Week After Hours. Uh, but it's been such a fun conversation here, Story. And you told me it was just going to be a few minutes and look at us. We're like creeping up on an hour already. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you for, for your time, for your insights. I will make sure to follow the podcast to I already have a book, but I'm definitely going to gift a few more copies. So thanks so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have any further questions, I'm not sure that Steve will check them out, but I definitely will. So make sure to post them in the comments. How did you like the podcast? How do you like this conversation? What was your main key takeaway? Let us know and make sure to keep following Productivity Mastery on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and all other major platforms. We'll be with you inviting amazing people like Steve to share the best advice on culture, entrepreneurship, and leadership. Thank you so much and see you next time. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure to subscribe to my monthly newsletter by visiting stoyaniankov.com and also learn about the Perform methodology and the Perform book, as well as our various personal and team coaching offers. Stay tuned and keep performing.